Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for that time of worship. Thank you for being with us here by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you to, for speaking to us. Thank you for um, giving us words to pray in tongues and interpreted that we've, we've worshipped you and, and sung out your praises, Lord God. Thank you for being here. I pray you would continue to speak. You would continue to move mightily in this place as we read your word in the Bible. And as I preach, Lord God, and I'll pray, I'll pray a, uh, a hard prayer in one sense, Lord. I'm asking that you would convict us of, of sin in this room this evening, uh, this morning, as we read Genesis chapter 3. But also you'd remind us of the grace and forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. May we honour and glorify him and receive from you during this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're continuing, well, we're finishing really our Genesis sermon series this morning, um, just in the first three chapters of Genesis. So we're coming to Genesis chapter 3 today. I'm going to read that in a moment to us. We've seen in Genesis chapter 1 that God created a good universe. He looked upon all that he had made in Genesis 1 and it was very good. In Genesis chapter 2, he plants a garden for men and women to work together in and gives them just one command. Just one command in Genesis chapter 2. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you do eat, you shall surely die. We're going to read Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to see how human beings shall make their choice. And the choice that they make is to disobey God. To rebel against him and to bring sin and death into the world. So let's read Genesis 3 together and if Johnny's got the PowerPoint up already he's done an awesome job. Thank you Johnny. Um, Let's read together Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, And the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, this man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the moment when Adam and Eve, as representatives of all humanity, as the father and mother of human beings, choose to reject God's commands. They go their own way. They say, God's, we reject God's commands and we're going to go our own way. And as they do so, they bring sin and death and evil and shame and fear into God's good creation. In fact, their children and every human afterwards is born into sin, unable to escape sin's clutches in their own strength. And we call this moment the fall, the fall of humanity. They were given such a glorious gift in creation and such a wonderful place to live and work. And it was ruined because of their disobedience and sin. And I want to preach through three things from the text that I've just read to you this morning. Firstly, I want to look at Satan's temptations, the way he tempts humanity to sin. Secondly, I want to think about the nature of sin in humanity. And thirdly, I want to preach on the consequences of sin. We've had such a great morning singing about grace and and hearing from God. I don't want you to lose that. I want you to hold on to that. I promise that there's a nice bit at the end. But we're going to have a a long journey through the negativity of Genesis chapter 3 before we come to speak of Christ and how he brings salvation from this situation and from this story. So do not lose hope but do not lose the positivity of all that we've had already this morning. But let's let's honour the text. Let's honour the word of God by working our way through Genesis chapter 3. So the first thing we ought to think about is the serpent and Satan's temptations to to bring Adam and Eve into sin. Now, when God created the Garden of Eden, he chose to put the tree of knowledge and good and evil in the garden. It was God who created that tree and put it in the garden. And God is all-knowing. So when he put the tree there, he knew what would happen in Genesis chapter 3. But he chose to give mankind a choice. You notice that God also created the serpent in the text. The serpent is described in Genesis 3 verse 1 as one of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. 
So God made the tree and God made the serpent. As the Bible unfolds, we're taught that the serpent wasn't just any old serpent, but it was Satan who was in the garden in that place. The Bible um, in Revelation 12 verse 9 says this, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so historically Christians have believed that Satan came to possess a snake in the Garden of Eden in order to tempt Adam and Eve to sin. Satan is a created being as well, by the way. God gave angels freedom to choose as well. And Satan was an angel who chose to rebel against God. So Genesis 3 doesn't say loads about the origins of evil. But there are certain things that we can say from Genesis chapter 3. Firstly, we ought to say this. God is not the author of evil. Everything he directly creates in Genesis 1 is good. So we cannot call God the author of evil. What he created was very, very good. And yet, God does create choice. He gives humans and angels a will of their own to make decisions. I don't know how helpful it is to speak in this way, but you could say that God allows for the possibility of sin and evil to exist in his creation. He's not the author of evil. Evil does not come from him, but he has given human beings a choice. We're not going to go too far down this road, but there's a a big hypothetical, philosophical question. Which world would be better? Would it be a world where it's impossible for human beings to sin, where we have no will of our own and we have a small, limited understanding of God's goodness? We we would appreciate that God gave us trees, which were quite nice to look at and gave us nice fruit to eat. So we would know something of God's goodness. Is that the best option philosophically or is it better for a world to exist in which humans have choice and have a will of their own and yet choose sin? And therefore we go through, as humanity, we go through a season where sin and death and evil exist. But in that reality, God reveals his goodness and mercy and love through the person and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he calls us to enter into eternity gladly and joyfully with a far deeper understanding of God's goodness. For he loved us so much, Jesus Christ, that he died for us on the cross. And so we enter into an eternity that is better than the Garden of Eden. Do you see those two options? That's a philosophical argument. I'm just going to stop there. And maybe over tea and coffee you want to chat with me. Which option was, would be better? Which world God should have created? I'm going to trust God and say that he, he got it right in giving us a will and giving us a choice. So God is not the author of sin, but he did give man, woman and the angels a will, a choice. The third thing that we need to say about the origins of evil is that Satan and humans choose rebellion and therefore are responsible for sin, evil and death coming into the world. That is our responsibility as humanity. And we see how the story unfolds, how the serpent, Satan, possessing this snake, has tactics to lure Eve and Adam into sin. And we need to know that Satan is still working in this world today. 
He has been defeated by Christ upon the cross. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. So you can never be possessed by a demon because the Holy Spirit is in you. And yet Satan and his demons seek to influence us. And he uses the same tactics that he used in Genesis chapter 3. And so we're going to look at this story and just be aware that Satan and his demons want to tempt us into sin as well. And we ought to be aware of the way he's going to work. So have a look at verse 1. Satan speaks to Eve and says... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He takes God's commands in chapter 2 and twists them, subtly changes them. Because, of course, that isn't what God said, is it, at all? God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden except this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The question creates a doubt in the mind of Eve. It's a question designed to question whether God really is good. Do you see that's the the effect of the question? Did God actually say, is God this kind of horrible boss who tells you that you can't do anything, that there's nothing good for you to enjoy in this garden? And this is what Satan seeks to do. I want you to know that the root of all sin is a failure to see God's goodness. If you firmly and wholeheartedly believe God is good, then you know that his instructions are also good. And you will do anything and everything he tells you to do. Because he's totally good. Why would he ever tell me to do something that's bad if he's totally good? No, he's, he's, so if you believe firmly in the goodness of God, you will never sin because you will obey the things that God tells you to do. When we do sin, it's, it's because of those doubts come into our mind and start to affect us and we do things that are wrong. And those are moments where we doubt the goodness of God. That's the first thing Satan does, the tactic of Satan. He twists. Did God really say this? And Eve's response in, in verses 2 to 3 is, is quite interesting as well. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruits of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Adam has passed on God's command to Eve in some way. She understands that there's a command. But did you notice that she intensifies the command that God gave? God said, you shall not eat of the tree. But he didn't say anything about touching the fruit. So Eve's added to the commands that God has given to her. Do you know one way in which we sin as human beings is to add to what God has said and say this is another command of God this is an extra requirement of God I don't know whether this is a good or helpful example but this bit always makes me think of the Catholic Church saying only unmarried men can be priests in the church it's just not biblical it's just an added extra intensification of what God instructs and it's caused huge problems throughout the history of the church a terrible terrible idea to add to what the Bible instructed And we can do the same thing as well. We can add to what God has given us in his word, make our own commands and then say, oh, these are of God. And of course, as leaders, we ought to be really careful about that as well, because we can, from the pulpit, say this is what God said. And actually, this is what Duncan said and thought was a good idea. So you ought to have your Bibles open when I'm preaching and go, is this really what God is saying or is this just what you think, Duncan? Satan responds to Eve in verses four to five. And this time he's not subtly twisting God's word. He's outright calling God a liar. 
You will not surely die, says Satan. God's lying to you. He hasn't told you the truth. He's not telling you what's right. But God knows, says Satan, when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What Satan's saying is God wants to hold you down, Eve. God wants to stop you doing the things that you really want to do. He's worried about you. He's scared of you, God. He doesn't want you to, he doesn't want you to eat the fruit and be like him. He doesn't want you to have a truly fulfilling life. This is what Satan does. He starts to subtly twist God's word and then he outright calls God a liar and says that God doesn't want your best. He doesn't love you, doesn't care for you. He's trying to hold you and keep you down. But we know God is good, that his instructions are good. And so Satan is just outright lying in this moment. And I think Christians will often have internal dialogues a bit like this. You're going out with non-Christian friends and there's a temptation to get drunk with them. Did God really say you can't drink anything? That you can't ever have any fun? Oh, no, hang on, hang on. Jesus drank wine, but the Bible says don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You won't be filled with the Holy Spirit. God knows you're going to have a whale of a time if you hang out with those guys and fall into sin. You're going to have a great time. Being drunk's way more fun than being filled with the Holy Spirit. God is a killjoy. All right then, just tonight I'll do this thing that I know to not be right. Or you try and set aside some time to pray. Did God actually say you ought to have a quiet time every day or he won't love you, says Satan? No, he he didn't say that, but, but he says I can pray to my father and my father who sees me pray in secret will reward me. God doesn't reward people who pray. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't listen to you. He's just trying to control you. He's not going to reward you. God's not even listening when you pray. Oh, okay, I'm not going to pray. I'm too busy anyway. Or you see someone who needs help on Fairham High Street. Perhaps a homeless person asking for food. Did God really say you have to love and care for everyone? That eradicating poverty in Fairham is your responsibility? Well, no, he didn't say that, but he said, love your neighbour as yourself, for Christ has loved me. Christ doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about this guy on the street. He doesn't love him. Buying him lunch isn't going to make a difference. And so you think, oh, I'll just walk on by and not do what God has commanded. There are two important lessons we must learn from the temptations of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. Firstly, know your Bibles. Know the word of God. Read it and learn it. So that when Satan tries to twist God's word, you know what it actually says. And that's that's why we're the church. We work together to read God's word and learn together. But also on your own, I'd encourage you, spend time in the word. Know it. Memorise it. Do as much as you can to know what God truly teaches. But I think the most important lesson we must learn from Satan's temptations in Genesis 3 is Satan wants you to think that God isn't good, that he's trying to push you down. 
And you need to know that the opposite is true. God gives us instructions and commands because he is good, because he loves us. And so we need to know the goodness of God. And this is our most, perhaps our most powerful weapon against giving in to temptations and sin is knowing the goodness of God. That's why we sing together and worship. We're singing of God's goodness, celebrating how awesome he is, reminding one another of God's goodness. That's why we preach the gospel over and over and over again, that Jesus loved us so much. He died for us upon the cross. That's his mercy, that's his love, that's his goodness declared for all the world to see. We ought to remind one another of God's goodness over and over and again. We need to preach to ourselves that God is good and everything he commands and every word that he gives to you is good. Never doubt the goodness of God. Even when he takes you into a dark and difficult place and tells you to do something that is intimidating and scary and and you get worried, God is good. When God says, leave the place that you live and go and plant a church in Fairham, and Rachel, he's not here today, but Rachel lives in the, in the north of the country and you're hoping God was going to say, go further north to be closer to her. She hasn't agreed to marry me yet. God says, no, go to the south coast. I'm like, really, God? Is that really what you're saying? Okay, I'm going to trust in God's goodness. And he was good enough to persuade Rachel to eventually marry me and she came with me. <laughs> Praise God. Um, these things happen in life. We, we doubt God's goodness, but God is good. And the things he tells you to do will be good for you because he loves you. They may well be hard, but they will be good. Now, secondly, let's think about the nature of sin in Adam and Eve. Look carefully at verse 6 and we'll begin to get a fuller understanding of how humans fall into sin. You'll notice in verse 6 that Eve's eyes are critical She sees that the tree was good for food. She sees that it is a delight to the eyes. Now remember Genesis 1. God's looking upon his creation. He sees that it's good. But here something else is going on. Eve is looking upon something that's forbidden and she's seeing that that is good. So God saw right in Genesis chapter 1. He saw that his creation was good. But here Eve sees and she gets it totally wrong. She's seeing something that's actually not good because God has said don't eat of it. And we know that God is good. So what to eat of that fruit would be a wrong thing to do. But her gaze is transfixed and she starts to see this, this fruit as a good thing. Be careful what you see. Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. The obvious example of this is sexual sin. The world is full of images designed to make you fall into the sin of lust. And this is what Christ says concerning lust. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pornography, scenes in movies, seductive marketing, people dressing inappropriately. There is much in this world that is designed to draw in your eyes and lead you into sin. So you ought to guard your eyes. Your eyes are at risk. And when your eyes are are at risk, your heart is at risk. And your heart is the wellspring of life, the place where the Holy Spirit resides within you. So guard your eyes. Eve sees. She looks on the fruit and Satan's schemes have worked. 
She's not thinking about God's goodness anymore and the goodness of creation, but on the goodness of this fruit, which isn't actually good for her to eat. You see that word desire in the text as well. She desires this thing that God has told Adam and Eve not to eat. And so just examine yourself for a moment, just for a moment, look, look inwards. What do you desire? Is it godly? Or is it selfish or lustful or against God's commands? And if so, pray for forgiveness and ask for help. Fix your gaze once again upon the goodness of God and make him your greatest desire, your greatest satisfaction, which came out in in Chris's interpreted tongue by Laurie. Remember that, that Christ is all we need, the greatest treasure, as Flavia spoke about in her word. Eve believes the fruit will make her wise, but we know that true wisdom is learning from and submitting to God's commandments. So eating that fruit is the opposite of wisdom, to eat that fruit. Now look back at verse 5. What's really going on in this moment where she sees this fruit is that she wants to be like God. Satan's tempted her and said, you can be like God. And, And she goes, yeah, I can be like God. The heart of sin The heart of the fool, the heart of rebellion against God is thinking he's not good, his instructions aren't good and I know better. If I were God, I would do it this way and this would be what's right and what's wrong. So you you forget God's goodness, you question his instructions and you think actually I can be my own God today. I can be my own captain, I can decide what's good, I can decide what's evil and therefore we do what God says is wrong but we think it's okay. God is good. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he is God. And he will always be God and you will never be God. So don't fool yourself into thinking that you will be or can be. If you spend your life trying to be your own God, you will do more harm to yourself than good because God is good and so his instructions are good so if you go I'm going to be my own God I'm going to forget the God and be my own God you will end up doing more harm than good and many of you know this in your own life you've you've got stories where you went your own way you did certain things and you ended up harming yourself more than if you would followed God and done what he instructs you to do and so if you're in that in that place right now and thinking actually I've gone my own way I've gone I've gone I've become my own God. I've decided for myself what's good and what's right. Come back to this place where God wants you to be. Come back to him through the, what Christ has done. Come back to the Father and say, God, I know you're good. Forgive me for what I've done wrong. Turn me around. Change me. You are God. You are good. You made me. You know what's best for me. You know more about me than I know about myself. And in that place of coming back and acknowledging God as God, you will find peace and joy and contentment And he will lead you in the path of everlasting life. But Adam and Eve weren't in that place. And they ate of the fruit and sinned against God. And there were consequences of that sin. I think there are at least seven consequences of sin listed in this passage which I have to go through quickly. Um, (laughs) I can see Jeff looking at the clock. Uh, Seven consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3. The first is death. God said, if you eat from the tree, you shall surely die. 
And so from the moment that they they ate, there was a curse placed upon them and all of humanity that they would one day die. Death was not in this world for humanity at this stage. Death only came into the world because they disobeyed God. And so illness and pain and death only in this world because of humanity's sin. If you sin, you will die. Second consequence of sin is shame. Look at the end of um, chapter 2, verse 25. They were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no shame in the world, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall. But then, chapter 3, verse 7. Their eyes were opened and they were immediately ashamed of their nakedness. And they covered up. But more than that, they were ashamed in the presence of God. They hear God walking in the garden and they run and hide. You can never hide from God. It's a bad idea. It will not work. Whenever people in the Bible try and hide from God, God finds them. (laughs) But the reason they hide is because they're ashamed. They've broken his commands. They're ashamed of what they have done. They're ashamed of their nakedness. They're ashamed of this perfect God walking in the Garden of Eden. A righteous man and woman could have stood confidently in the presence of God. But a sinful one will always be ashamed and know they are unworthy to be in the presence of a holy, holy God. So sin brings death and sin brings shame. Sin also brings fear. Before sin, there was no fear. But in verse 10, Adam says to God, I was afraid. I heard you walking the garden, I was afraid. So that he wasn't just shamed. He wasn't, he, he wasn't just going to die. He wasn't just ashamed. He was also scared. What's going to happen to me? I've disobeyed God. I've got to hide from him. He said, I'm going to surely die. So fear comes into the world. Do you know, fear ruins so much of life, doesn't it? Fear holds us back from doing the things that we ought to do. Fear holds us back from joy. It, 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 God doesn't push us down. God raises us up, but fear can push us down. Fear only exists in the world because of sin, because of the fall. The fourth consequence of sin is the blame game. Look at verses 12 to 13. The man says, oh, it's the woman's fault. She gave me the fruit. Well, no, Adam, you took a bite as well. You knew the command as well. And the woman goes, oh, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. He deceived me. Well, No, Eve, you knew the command as well and you took a bite. They blame each other. No one takes responsibility for the wrongdoing, but they attack others. The relationships immediately begin to break down. Can you imagine on a Sunday we all gathered in church, right? And every week what we did is we talked about something wrong that had gone gone wrong in the week. And then we all pointed the fingers at each other and said it was that person's fault. Like it was Jason's fault. And Jason goes, it wasn't my fault. It was Temmie's fault Um, because he wants to blame his wife. (laughs) No, I'm joking. Like, that would be awful, wouldn't it? But that's what happens in the Garden of Eden. Like, relationships break down and are ruined and people just blame everybody else. It's not my fault, it's their fault. There are other consequences as well. God is just. So as well as the self-inflicted harm, those consequences, God also pronounces three curses on those involved in this moment. He curses the snake. You're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dust. The craftiest beast that God had made is now the most cursed beast that God has made. And worst of all, for the snake, in verse 15, you're going to be an enemy of woman. You have and will continue to deal damage to mankind. You're going to bruise the heel of mankind. But one day, 
a man born of woman shall bruise or crush your head. Jesus Christ is, of course, the fulfilment of that prophecy in Genesis 3, verse 15. Satan seems to have won a victory in Genesis chapter 3, but the curse of his ultimate defeat is immediately prophesied against him. And Christ comes and defeats Satan upon the cross and and overcomes him and is victorious. He crushes the head of evil in Satan. And one day Satan will be judged and will have no no power whatsoever. He will be completely defeated. We're still living in this in-between stage where he has been defeated, but his eradication and his ultimate punishment is yet to come. But know that Christ is the offspring of woman who crushed the head of evil, who bruised the serpent's head. God also curses the woman. Firstly, with pain in childbearing. Before the fall, God's mission for humanity was to be fruitful and multiply. Well, after, that, after the fall, fulfilling that mission will be painful and difficult. There's a, that's, a, that's a significant curse, isn't it, brought upon the woman. Fulfilling what God has still called you to will be painful and difficult. Secondly, the woman is told, your desire shall be contrary to your husband in the ESV. But in every other English translation, it says, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. A rare case where I think the ESV doesn't get it right. Your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, if you turn the page to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God speaks to Cain. And God speaks to Cain and says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over sin. In other words, in chapter 4, there's a battle for power. Sin wants to overcome. Its desire is to overcome the man. But God says to Cain, no, Cain, you need to rule over sin. You need to conquer sin. It's the same idea. It's the same language in chapter 4 as chapter 3. Instead of delighting in her role as helper to the man and working together, there is a battle, a tussle for power between the woman and the man, which is part of this curse. And what God says is man will rule. And we've seen in history that man has not led in love, but in selfish tyranny. Finally, there's a curse upon the man. Just like the woman who was given good instructions before the fall and they became harder and painful to fulfil after the fall, Adam said that working the ground will become cursed. He was given this, this role, this occupation to work the Garden of Eden before the fall, but now it will be hard. There'll be thorns and there'll be thistles and there'll be hard labour. And the, the curse sounds like sometimes there's just going to be a struggle for food and they won't have enough. And then verse 19 ends with the reminder of death. To dust you shall return. Brothers and sisters, sin has consequences. And none of us are innocent. We share in the guilt of Adam and Eve. They represented us. And we commit sin daily. If there's anyone in this room who says, I never sin, then you're the worst of us all because you are too blinded to see the things that you do wrong. We live in a world of death and shame and fear and not taking responsibility and pain in childbirth and pain in work and broken relationships and we are contributing to that by the things that we do wrong. 
the ways in which we don't worship and love God, don't honour him and don't obey his commandments. And Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden and all seems to be lost. Is there any hope? Well, in verse 21, I think there might be. An animal dies and God uses the skin of the animal to cover Adam and Eve's shame and nakedness. The first animal sacrifice in the Bible takes place here. Um, And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know there's plenty of animal sacrifices. And in those animal sacrifices, there is a foreshadowing of Christ to come. The animal dies in order to take away shame. So Christ dies upon the cross as a substitute for sin. So that all who believe in him aren't aren't destroyed by guilt, but have their guilt taken away, their sins forgiven. His death covers over our sin. Christ on the cross endures shame. He dies on the cross. He was probably naked on the cross and there were insults thrown at him as he hung upon the tree. He, he died the ultimate death of shame. He took our shame and died with our shame so that as Christians we need not be ashamed. Instead of shame we receive honour and glory for people who believe in Christ. Those who believe in Christ need not fear because God is with you and God is for you in everything that you do because Christ has died for you and taken away your sins so you are son and daughter of God. Christians don't blame other people. They confess their own sin, but they know that Jesus died for them. So they're no longer guilty before God. And Christians cling to the promise that Christ will come again. And all the curses of Genesis 3 will be wiped away and undone. And all of us will live on the earth in peace and love, freedom and joy forever and ever. We'll still probably work, but it won't be cursed. It will be joyous work and easy work, glorious and wonderful. Our relationships will no longer be broken, but we will love one another perfectly and work together as we ought. And all of life will be with God here on earth. So the fall is an absolute disaster in Genesis chapter 3. It's an absolute disaster. But Christ on the cross is our saviour, redeeming us and the world from all that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. And so we love the grace of God. We did not deserve what Christ had done for us, but we love him for what he did in dying for us, in rescuing us from all of this. And if you are a Christian, you can sit there listening to this with joy because you have been rescued, you have been saved, you deserved all these consequences, you deserve to to die because of what you have done. But because of Christ, you have the gift of everlasting, eternal life. You shall not surely die like we deserved, but you shall surely live in the presence of God forever. And so to finish this morning, we're going to take communion together. We're going to eat bread and remember that on the cross, Christ gave his body for us. We're going to drink wine, although we're using juice. And we're going to celebrate that Christ shed his blood for us upon the cross, that we might be forgiven and freed from the curses of Genesis chapter 3. We're going to celebrate Christ's awesome, awesome work through taking communion. Now, if you're a Christian, I want you to take your time in a moment of quiet, to confess your sin and then know that you are forgiven and rise and go and take communion at either side of the room. If you're a visitor and you're a Christian, you're very welcome to join with us in that. If you're not a Christian, your sin needs to be dealt with by Christ. Your shame needs to be taken away. 
Your eternal life needs to be secured. And that can only come by belief and faith in Christ and what he has done. Otherwise, you will endure the consequences described in Genesis chapter 3. So I want to invite you, if you're not a Christian, to believe on Christ this morning. Now, if you don't, then please just watch us take communion, because this is a moment for believers. But if you want to say, actually, now is the moment I want, to rec- I want to receive from Christ, I want to believe on him, I want to receive salvation that Duncan has spoken of, this is an opportunity to respond in faith. And I invite you, if you're in that place of wanting to receive Christ, go and take communion and celebrate his death upon the cross and say, yes, this is for me. I shall not die, but I will live eternally with God. So let's just take a moment in quiet to confess our sin. And then when you're ready, let's rise and go to either side of the room and take communion together. And then I will finish in prayer. Please do keep responding, but let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to confess that we have sinned against you. That we, with Adam and Eve, bear the responsibility for sin and death and guilt and shame and fear being in this world. Even today, even this week, we have done things that have not honoured you. We've not obeyed your good, good instructions. Forgive us, we pray. And thank you that we can pray that because of what Christ did for us upon the cross. That Genesis 3 is not the end of the story. It's it's the fall. It's, It's a cataclysmic, disastrous moment in history. And yet there is a great story of salvation that comes afterwards. And we thank you for Christ. Loved us so much he died for us to take away our guilt and our sin and our shame and our fear. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us upon the cross. Thank you that you did not remain in the grave, but rose victoriously. That you defeated death. That we have eternal life. We shall not die. Or at least we will have everlasting life with you in the new heavens and the new earth. We praise you. We praise you for that wonderful, wonderful work of salvation. I pray for anyone here who has not yet accepted that salvation, Lord. Reveal yourself to them in their hearts, we pray. And I pray we would live, Lord God, in sight of just how good you are. You are so good. You are so wonderful. Teach us to sing and to live in the knowledge of your goodness. Lord, we should never disobey anything you say, because everything you say is always good. We thank you that you are good. Fill us with a knowledge of your grace and with passion for your name and an assurance of your forgiveness and your love, I pray. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.